Corinthians. Last Sunday, we began a new section in chapter 15 where Paul corrects the Corinthians' carnal views of the gospel since some members in the Corinthian church were questioning the resurrection of Christ and more particularly questioning their own resurrection at his return. In verses 1 to 11, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the biblical gospel. And we looked at the first portion of Paul's reminder where he described the Corinthians' reception to the gospel, their standing in the gospel, and their salvation in the gospel, verses 1 and 2. We also looked at uh, how the gospel, how Paul described how the gospel is of first importance since it describes the salvific work of Jesus Christ and since, obviously, it's the only message of salvation. We looked at that in verses 3 or verse 3a. And we also looked at Paul said about the gospel, how it is defined according to Scripture. He literally laid out the gospel according to Scripture. And that was in verses 3b to 4. And this morning, we're going to focus on the second portion of Paul's reminder and uh, tackle points four through six. So we've done one through three last Sunday. Today is four through six, Lord willing. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, we're looking at the remainder there of verses five to 11. Verses five to 11. I'm gonna pray for God's help before we get to work. Lord, we thank you uh, thus far for uh, this worship service and how you've gathered us together and we know we have quite a few people that are out today, and we pray that you're with them and with Cameron as he does his work and with Dave as he's away and with the Tackets and others, Lord, and just a bunch of people missing. We just pray over them, Lord, that you're with them, that you keep them safe, that you bring them back to us safely, Lord. And uh, right now we just want to lift up this whole service to you again. We're thankful for the gathering of the saints, something that you've blessed us with until Christ returns. It's such a joy. And uh, we've, we've worshipped you through song and through scripture reading and even through an announcement time. And now, Lord, we're going to worship you through the proclamation of your word. And so we pray that you are glorified during this time, Lord, as you build us up. And uh, we commit ourselves to you and to your word. We submit to the authority of your word. And we pray that you teach us again about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And that's what we're looking at in the text. So uh, we thank you, Lord, for what you'll do, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up where we left off last Sunday. We're looking at the fourth point now, number four. This is the next thing that Paul says about the gospel in his reminder to the Corinthians. He's now describing the gospel others witnessed, the gospel that others witnessed. And we see this in verses 5 to 8. And Paul says this, he says, and he's talking about after Jesus rose from the grave. Then he says, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Of course, they were when Paul wrote this. And he says, though some have fallen asleep. And then verse 7, he says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. <clears throat> and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And Paul's talking about himself. So to bolster his defense of the biblical gospel, and more particularly the doctrine of resurrection, Paul reminds the Corinthians of people uh, who physically witnessed the risen Christ. You see, this is a, a really a, a brilliant argument to make here. If, if somebody at one time believed in the resurrection of Christ or really didn't struggle with that doctrine and then they begin to, 
Paul has already laid out again how essential resurrection is to the gospel. It is the gospel. But now he's going to go to eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, which proves what? Resurrection. So this is a, a really kind of a brilliant direction to go in, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He reminds the Corinthians of people who physically saw Christ risen. And the point being that if people saw Christ alive after his death on the cross and after a three-day burial in a tomb, the, the reality and doctrine of resurrection, it has to be irrefutably true. Paul describes what took place after Jesus was raised on the third day according to Scripture. Firstly, he appeared to Cephas, or that's actually Peter. Peter had like three names. Cephas, Peter, same guy. That's the apostle. Luke 24, 34. And then he appeared to the 12 or to the 12 disciples. And that included Judas's replacement, Matthias. John 20, 19 to 29. John 21, 1 to 19. And then Acts 1, 20 to 26. The verses I'm citing are those literal appearances to these people. And then Paul says he, appe he appeared to them. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That, that's such an interesting verse and mysterious verse. Like there's a bunch of people gathered somewhere and then there's 500 brothers gathered together somewhere and then Jesus appears to them. I'm not exactly sure the mechanics of it or the logistics, but he literally appears to more than 500 male believers. It's incredible. And then to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he went on to become the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And then Paul says another eyewitness is uh, Jesus appeared to one untimely born, which is he himself. He was the one untimely born. Paul doesn't mention here in this text, he's got great eyewitnesses here, but he doesn't mention others whom Jesus appeared to, like Mary Magdalene, Matthew 28, 1, and Mark 16, 9, John 20, 11 to 18, all speak to that. Uh, to a gal named Joanna, the Mary, uh, the, she's, or, or to a gal named uh, Joanna, and then to Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and then to Salome, whom an elder called Salami. I couldn't believe that years ago. I always bring that up when I see it. He appears to these gals, and then it says also to other women Jesus appeared to after he rose. So he didn't just appear to his disciples or to 500 brothers or just to men, but also to women. And that would have been un unheard of in this day to have recorded anything like that because, sadly, women just didn't have any value in the first century. And so to appear to women, to mention that in Scripture, is just incredible. It's empowering to women. So, and, and this is all recorded in, in Matthew 28, 1 and Mark 16, 1, Luke 24, 10. And then also, after appearing to all these women, he appears to two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, Mark 16, 12, Luke 24, 13 to 35. Um, just a lot of people saw Christ risen. Lots. Between his resurrection and ascension, over a period of 40 days, Acts 1, 3, Jesus appeared to all of the apostles on other occasions, some in which aren't recorded in Scripture. It just, it's a general term saying he appeared on and off to them throughout that whole duration before he ascended. In fact, the apostle John recounts one such appearance in John 21, 1 to 14. You talk about on the beach where he restores Peter and stuff. 
What do all these people have in common? Well, they all witnessed the risen Christ with their own eyes. They saw him. Somebody even touched him. You remember when he came into the room where the disciples were. So they all saw him. They all witnessed the risen Christ with their own eyes. Therefore, the gospel um, that they had heard, because all of these people knew the gospel because Jesus taught it, it was, it was authenticated to all of them through their own witnessing of Christ. These people had been taught the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and then it was completely affirmed and confirmed when they looked on Jesus on the cross, and then they knew he went and got buried, and then they saw him risen. So they had heard the gospel, and they had witnessed it with their own eyes. That's why Paul is bringing this up. You don't, you don't, you don't affirm the resurrection. You have a problem with the resurrection. You're now questioning the resurrection, that key facet of the gospel. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a whole lot of people that Jesus appeared to. They not only believed the gospel, but they saw Christ, who is essentially the gospel, in person after he rose. In this gospel, the life, death, burial, of resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we've talked about from Scripture, that is the gospel. It's not the hope that you can get in Christ. It's none of that. Those are all the bennies of the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That gospel that they had heard, that gospel that they had seen come back to life in a sense, it's the only gospel that any of these people ever knew. There was no other gospel. There's no gospel at this point. I mean, there's a great many false gospels today, but there's no gospel at that point that is devoid of the resurrection, which is what the Corinthians are now trying to somehow embrace. It's always been the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at this point. That's what they heard. That's what they saw. So this is the gospel that everyone knew. There were no subtractions at this point. There were no variants. These people that Paul is pointing to literally saw the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They saw nothing more, nothing less. And they bore witness to this gospel. These same people, those who hadn't fallen asleep by the time Paul is writing this, that means they passed away, but... This is the, the same gospel that they heard when Jesus was here, that they saw Jesus model and display through all those, those, the acts of crucifixion and the rising from the dead. This is the very gospel that the same people took out and spread and preached. It's the only one they knew. Now, if you had pulled any of these witnesses that Paul's talking about here, if you'd Paul pulled any of them aside... You know, hey, hey, Jim, come here. I, I, I don't know. Jim sounds like an American name. It probably is. But hey, Jim, I know you're Israeli and your name Jim. That's weird. But come here, Jim. Jim, I have a problem with this idea of resurrection. I, I just don't think it's a reality. And what would Jim say? I saw him with my own eyes walking among us, continuing to teach us. How can you say that's like saying, I don't think half dome exists. Well, Jim has scaled it. I've climbed the thing. I've seen it. I've been to Yosemite. I've seen El Capitan. I saw Jesus with my own eyes. How can you say that? Well, if that's what you want to believe, go ahead. But, I mean, I saw the man. I saw the Messiah. 
they would say, that's funny. We saw Jesus alive with our own eyes. And, and that's essentially what Paul is doing here. The Corinthians are befuddled and messed up over the resurrection. And he's saying, there's a whole bunch of people that saw him. How can you question this? How can you struggle with this? It's, it's, a, it's not just something that's written in this book of ours. It's a historical reality. And some people say, well, it's only recorded in the scripture. No, 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 that's not true. Josephus wrote it down. He, he recorded parts of the gospel, and he was a, a Jewish historian. He may not have believed it, but he documented what he heard and saw. You know, if you pulled any of these people aside, they would be like, I, I, I don't even understand where this is coming from. And what Paul's doing here is this, this is what he's doing to the Corinthians. He's calling forth eyewitnesses against them. You know, they start tangling with, with these essentials of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul says, well, well, we can't have that. It's the only message of salvation. If you reject any portion of it, you're going to hell. So I'm going to call forth some witnesses. It's like a court scene here. You know, back then in the Old Testament, you had to have like one or two witnesses at most. There's 570 or so here. It's as if Paul is saying to the Corinthians here by recounting what these people saw, including himself, he saw Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, face to face. So, so powerful and brilliant was the glory of Christ in this moment that the man was blind for several days. But he saw him before his sight went out. And he's saying this to them, some of you are doubtful and now you're questioning the resurrection. Might I remind you of eyewitnesses to the gospel? Those who literally saw the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with their own eyes. Cephas, the 12, over 500 brothers, James, all the apostles, and including me. See, rejection of either the entire gospel or even a portion of the gospel does not make the gospel less true or obsolete we have the testimony of real historical witnesses right here in the text and throughout the New Testament. We have the testimony of a first century non-Christian historian, Josephus, who documented this. He actually wrote this in, it's part of the gospel, and he wrote this in, in Antiquities Book 18. He wrote um, the crucifixion and death of the Messiah and wise teacher, Jesus Christ. This is what he recorded even refers to Jesus as the Messiah. And this is an unbelieving Jewish person. He himself writes it down in 93 to 94 AD. This gospel that we're talking about here, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which people heard and which people saw, the gospel that all the, the others witnessed and everyone witnessed, it's all the same gospel. It's the exact same gospel that Paul preached when he went into Corinth. And it's the gospel that the Corinthians had previously received and, and were, according to Paul, standing upon at the moment, but probably barely. And he says that they were being saved by it. He said all this in verses 1 to 2. What gospel is it? Again, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the only gospel. There's never been another gospel. This is what was preached at that time. This is what was witnessed by eyewitnesses. They saw the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what Paul preached. It's what the apostles preached. 
Never been anything else. Nothing more, nothing less. It's the gospel. Now, if we tamper with the gospel, which a great many people do, if we tamper with it at all, say, for instance, we remove the death of Jesus, we lose the atonement, and our sins were never, ever paid for. We still owe for them. Somebody has to pay for sin. It's either going to be us or Jesus. And sin is against God. And people owe him for that. And he doesn't tolerate it. So, so it's either us that pay for it or it's Jesus. And believe me, you don't want to pay for it. But if we take the death of Jesus out on that cross, that crucifixion, we don't have an atonement. The payment for sin has never been paid. You take out the burial, there is no settling of accounts. And the idea of, of the burial is that it, 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 you imagine in your mind's eye the, the taking of sin. As Jesus goes down into that grave, it's the taking of sin and removing it far from us. He's underground, he's buried, and sin is taken away from us as far as the east is from the west. That's what the burial represents. If we don't have the burial, I mean, we certainly don't have a death. Burial follows death. We don't have the taking of sin and removing it far from us. You take out the resurrection, which is what the Corinthians were potentially doing here or considering or just playing around with. You've got no justification. He was raised for our justification. There's just no way to be made right before God. And, of course, you don't have a future resurrection, do you? We just got these cruddy bodies and death forever. You take out one facet of the gospel and everything is lost. It's all gone. We're now under God's law and there's no way to get out from under it. There's no way for us to obey it perfectly and there's no way to get out from its penalty. That's how essential this gospel is and that's the seriousness of this text. Oh, I hear that you, you don't know about the resurrection. Oh, okay. You know, let me just, you know, let, let's go out and get coffee and sit around. This is life or death. We don't have, we don't have a resurrection here. Satan and the power of death still reign over sinners. There is no redemption of all things, and creation is just going to groan under the pain and bondage of sinful corruption for all eternity. It's just going to continue to groan and groan and groan for relief. And it's never going to come because there's no gospel. There's no redemptive work. There's no buyback. There's no purchasing out. Romans 8, 20 to 22. There's no new heavens, no new earth, no new Jerusalem. There's nothing new. It's as if we just live in a state of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun forever. Well, there's no hope in that. If one portion of the gospel is removed, all is lost. It's that simple. You understand? I, I say that with, with love in my heart. I, this is, these are the Corinthians. These, this was a church that we're talking about here and somehow they, they just they're getting off track and if they can get off track I think we can amen 
This, we talked about this last week. That's why you never stop preaching the gospel. It's the main message of the church, not just to unbelievers, but to believers. So that was the fourth point. Let's move to the fifth point. He talked about the witnesses. He talked about many things, but he talked about the witnesses. You got the list up on the screen. Number five, the gospel that transforms lives. This is the very next thing he talks about in verses 9 to 10. So he gets done talking about the gospel according to Scripture. He talks about the resurrection of Christ. He talks about all those eyewitnesses, everyone who saw it. And now he's going to talk about himself a bit in a good way. Verses 9 to 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. What a testimony. And he says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Stop there. After reminding the Corinthians of how he and others witnessed the, the gospel, they'd heard it, and then they, they, you know, they, Paul later witnesses it in the sense that he sees Jesus risen. And, and he's not just talking about the gospel in general, but more particularly the resurrection. After describing all these witnesses to it, now Paul shifts and describes how the gospel literally changed and transformed his life. Okay. Again, the thinking here is that you, 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 you have a problem with the gospel. Well, let me remind you what it is according to Scripture. And let me remind you of those who saw it. And let me remind you of its power and what it did to me, one untimely born. That's what he's doing here. You can, see, you can see the framework of his argument. This is a great apologetic, by the way, in this text for not just the resurrection but the whole gospel. Now he's talking about how it transformed his life. Prior to being saved by that gospel, Paul describes himself as a persecutor of the church of God. Persecutor meaning he, he went after the church. He tried to stop it. He inflicted harm and devastation and destruction upon Christians because he hated Christ, hated Christians, hated the church. He was a super religious Pharisee, very legalistic. Thought he was doing the right thing. This is all documented in Acts 8 and 9. After approving the execution of Stephen, who was one of the deacons in the church and just one of the most amazing preachers, after approving of the execution of Stephen, because Paul stood there, and his name was Saul at the time, he stood there and said, yeah, go ahead and kill him. After that, he ravaged the church by entering the homes of Christians and dragging them to prison, Acts 8, 1a and verse 3. Just prior to his conversion, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Acts 9-1. He was actually headed to Syria to destroy the Damascus church, Acts 9-2-3. We know the story of the Damascus road. He was, going, he was going to Damascus, Syria to launch a Hamas attack against the church of Christ. That's what he was doing. Paul, a.k.a. Saul, that was his former name because sometimes God renames people. After he redeems them, he redeemed them and called him Paul. But Paul, a.k.a. Saul, he was the Nero of his day. We know from history that Nero, who eventually beheaded Paul, was probably one of the worst 
emperors in Roman history, but certainly the worst persecutor of them all. I mean, he just killed thousands and thousands of Christians, turned them into human candles to light his garden. Could you imagine? Have a nice stroll through my garden. Who's that? That's Fred. Crispy critter on a pole. I mean, this is, this is demented. And this is what this man did. And Paul was very similar to Nero. He was a brutal persecutor of the way, which is what they called following Christ early on. He was so brutal and so tyrannical and so terrible uh, that the vast majority of Christians literally had to flee from Jerusalem and scatter to other regions to avoid incarceration and or death at the hands of Saul. Acts 8.1b. I, I don't think that, uh, because what we do is we typically look at the epistles and we look at the writings of Paul and we look at the ministries of Paul and we look at the, the missionary journeys of Paul and we all have such high esteem for him and certainly he ranks high on my list of amazing men of God and amazing Christians throughout all of church history, amen? But what we don't do is really consider and ponder and think about who he was before he became a Christian, before he was saved. He was absolutely horrible, a dragon destroying people's lives, the worst, the worst kind of sinner, an absolute threat to the people of God. I mean, he's the reason why they had to go underground to worship Jesus. He is the the, the, the tyrant of tyrants. He makes Newsom look like a Sunday school teacher. Hmm? Newsolini? Hey, this guy was just horrible. He was far worse than this governor. And notice what Paul says. Okay, Paul's laid that out as a persecutor. And it packed into that, that title, persecutors, everything that we've been talking about here and worse. But notice what he says at the beginning of verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's not talking about what he was. He's talking about what he had become. Who he was now, in that moment, after. And this statement immediately follows his testimony of being a terrible persecutor. And even because of that, even though God had made him something else by his grace, by that gospel of grace, he still considers himself to be among the apostles, but maybe the most unworthy of them all because none of them had a record of trying to wreck and destroy the church. But in any case, he is pointing to his transformation by that gospel. It is by God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul had been transformed. He was this, and now he was something else. He was a lost legalistic Pharisee, but now he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. How do you go from that to that? I mean, he was a brutal persecutor of the faith, but now he was a powerful preacher of that same faith. This is, this is the point that he's drawing here. You're struggling to believe the gospel. Paul's saying, I, I'm writing to tell you that I am a recipient of its grace and power. I was the absolute worst 
kind of person. I was a persecutor of the church. And by God's grace, I was made an apostle. How do you go from the worst kind of enemy to one of the biggest supporters of the church? That doesn't happen by osmosis. That doesn't happen by human effort. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring about such extraordinary change in the life of a person. That's the point. He'd become a, a powerful preacher of the faith. He was a persecutor. Now he's a preacher of this faith in Christ. And not only that, he describes how he went on to work harder than all of the other apostles. It sounds like he's boasting. And he kind of is in a way, but in a good way. I mean, just think about his record. You know anything about him. He did more missionary journeys. He planted more churches. He wrote more epistles than the 12 all combined. He's not deliberately boasting here. He's simply illustrating the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went from being the worst persecutor on earth to the hardest working apostle in the kingdom of God. Okay, that doesn't happen by osmosis. That's not by human effort. Only the gospel can cause that. Only the gospel can achieve something like that. It is the power of God, not only unto salvation, but unto an entirely new life in Christ. Romans 1, 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Eighteen months earlier, the Corinthians had been converted by the same gospel that had transformed Paul's life. They weren't converted by some version or variant of the gospel like a resurrectionless gospel when paul came into that that city with all its idolatry and chanting and fake tongues and everything else he comes in preaching the the death the burial of resurrection of jesus christ the spirit moves in power these people are converted and saved The same gospel that had transformed Paul's life had transformed these people's lives, was transforming their lives. They had the, the same spirit, the same gospel that Paul had. But unlike Paul, their transformation, or better yet, their, yeah, it's, it's a fine term to use for it, or sanctification, it had become stymied by what? All that carnality that we've been researching in the book and by just various forms of unbelief. So they had the same gospel and the same Holy Spirit that Paul had. And look at where Paul is in his life. And then now you think of the Corinthians and how un unlike him they are. And why is that? Because of all that carnality, because of all the crap and garbage they allowed into their church and lives. The lack of discipline, the lack of holiness, the lack of really robust, solid faith in the gospel. I mean, they started that way, but they kind of drifted. You know, they were like churches today. They think they start with the gospel, then they move on to other more profound things. There's nothing more profound than the gospel. What I'm saying is that a saint must cooperate with the Spirit in his or her own sanctification and renewal. 
Because right now we're thinking to ourselves, okay, the Corinthians have the same gospel and the same spirit. Why are they so unlike Paul? Why are they so messed up? We've been studying. They were suing each other. They had sexual immorality. They had all these problems in the church. It's a real church. They're called brothers over and over and over. But it's because they, they did not fully repent of sin. They did not put to death the things of the flesh. And they allowed some of those things to continue. And they weren't very disciplined. The Spirit is the regenerator and teacher, but it's the responsibility of the saint to regularly engage in the means of grace. It's their responsibility to obey the Word. Did you know that our own obedience to the Word is part of our own sanctification and growth? That the more we disobey the Word, the more unlike Jesus we become? It's a synergistic effort, right? I mean, regeneration is a monergistic thing. It's the works of the Spirit in us. He, he regenerates and makes us new. But after that, we cooperate with the Spirit. As the Spirit indwells us, we cooperate with Him by studying the Word, by engaging in prayer, by living as a Christian, by putting to death sin and these sorts of things. It's a synergistic effort between saint and the Spirit. And these Corinthians, they, they seemingly did not understand this, and that's why the church was so stymied. Without this synergism, growth and transformation is going to either be slowed in a church or stopped altogether, just going to stay as baby Christians. Like a little child, or maybe worse, like a little baby on a bottle. I mean, I've met some Christians, you know, I don't mean to sound harsh at all, but I've met people who profess Christ, who've been saved, you know, darn near as long as I've been alive, and they're the most immature Christians ever. And, and you sit there and you say, how is that even possible? How is it possible for you to be a man or woman of faith of 50 years and to be so infantile and elementary in your thinking? Because they didn't live a disciplined life and engage in the means of grace like they should have. Or they gave themselves over to carnality all the time in these things. They were like the Corinthians. I mean, we, we know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.1, right? Remember what he said to these Brothers and sisters, he says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. And then he calls them mere infants in Christ. So, so why, why, why does one group of believers advance and grow, and their transformation is extraordinary, and they're becoming more like Christ, and they, they, their, their doctrine is better, and they, 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 they speak with more of a, a godly tone, and, and they just seem like they're more rooted in Scripture. Why is there a group like that than a, and a group like the Corinthians? It really boils down to spiritual discipline. Same gospel, same spirit, two different types of persons. As I said, the Corinthians were graced with the same gospel, same spirit. They had the same access to all this transforming power that Paul had. They could have became like Paul, who was mature and godly and totally effective in ministry, if this particular church here, these Corinthians, would simply humble themselves and repent of their carnality and finally start to cooperate with the Holy Spirit like they had done early on. Spirit leads us and guides us. We need to hear his voice in us. We need to walk in the ways that, that he teaches us and trains us to walk according to Scripture. And if we don't actively pursue that on a daily basis, well, we're still walking, but we're just not walking in the Spirit. We're walking in the flesh. 
Just imagine if this church had had done that like Paul had done. Boy, that whole church would have been transformed from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it would have been or become a light to the world in a city on a hill like it's called to be. Instead, it looked just like the pagan temples. Matthew 5.14 describes the light of the world, city on a hill. That place, if they had cooperated with the Spirit, rather than suppressing and standing in opposition to the Spirit's leading in their lives, it would have became an oasis of grace to spiritually thirsty sinners in Corinth. And believe me, that city needed an oasis. But instead, it, it looked more like the rest of the city, didn't it? And now, I'm not even sure about the resurrection. It's where they're at. That's why Paul's given them all these evidences. Them forsaking any aspect of the gospel would really be the death blow to this church, find the finality of it. Surely the lampstand would be removed if they went that far. This is why we have the epistle. This is why we have the letter. It's a rescue letter. Right? That's what it is. It's a rescue letter. I'm writing to you because you were headed toward the broad road. You're about to take the wrong off-ramp. Like Bruce coming back from Shepcon. Almost took us to San Francisco. And, and worse than that, none of us realized it until we noticed that this was an ugly 99 scenery. You know, this, is, this is where they're headed. And he's saying... He's saying, here's the gospel. He's saying, here's people that witnessed it. He's saying, here's how it transformed and changed my life. And it's the same gospel and same spirit that you have. What, what is wrong with you? You're not, you're not cooperating. You're even questioning the gospel itself now. That's five. Let's move to number six, final point. The gospel the church preaches, verse 11. The thinking here is that the Corinthians are coming up with their own new gospel that doesn't really have much of a resurrection. And Paul's about to tell them, there's only one gospel. It's not just me that preach it. It's the whole church that preaches it. It's never changed. Verse 11, whether then it was, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you also believed. Verse 11, Paul points to himself and, and to others who preach the gospel, probably the other apostles who he has in mind. Why is he doing this? To demonstrate that the gospel that he's been describing throughout this text and what he and, you know, introduced them to um, 18, or 18 months earlier when he came and planted the church and all that, he's, he's, what he's saying here is this gospel that I am telling you now and that I told you back then, it's not just my gospel. It's the gospel that the whole church preaches. It doesn't matter if it was me that preached it or some other apostle. Same truth every time is what he's saying. Everyone at that point preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, because it is the message the church is to take to the ends of the earth. Mark 16, 15 to 16. Luke 24, 46 to 47. Acts 1, 8. Take that message, Jesus, take the death, burial, and resurrection, the one message of the church, of the whole church. There's no other gospel. You take that gospel, that message to all the nations, preach it to the rocks, take it to the ends of the earth. There is no other message. There's never been any other message for the church. 
The church's one foundation is Christ. The church's one message is Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ raised on the third day, the gospel. You think to yourself, wow, he's really beating a dead horse. Do we not need to beat this horse, this dead horse these days? When there's countless churches around us that are preaching all sorts of stuff, here's how to improve your sex life. That's not the message of the church. The gospel's the message. Go learn about that in some class. It, you know, it's a broken record up here in this pulpit sometimes. And really this is aimed at me. Phil, I'm saying to myself here, I'm not just saying things to you. I'm saying to myself, Phil, never forsake the gospel. Never move away from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do not violate chapter 15. Don't do it. I'm saying that to me. I'm saying that to these other elders. And of course I'm saying it to you. It's our only message. Now this is what they preached hardcore in the first century. Going around the death, burial, resurrection of Christ for your salvation, trust in him. That was the message of the church in the first century. J-Mac says, without exception, the preaching and teaching in the early church centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wherever Christ was preached and by whomever he was preached, his resurrection was the pivotal message that was proclaimed. So people in the first century, the apostles and others, when they preached the gospel, they would certainly preach his death on the cross and his burial, but they would really emphasize that resurrection because that's where the power comes in. When Paul and others like Apollos and Cephas preached the gospel in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.12, how did the Corinthians respond? What does it say at the end of verse 11 here? And so you believed. You believed the death and burial, and that was it. No, that's not what they believed. They believed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the whole gospel. Not just two parts of it or one part of it. You believed it, people. He's saying, you believed it. You remember when you believed it. See, the gospel is the message that the Corinthians initially believed. And it is the message that Paul is calling them back to here before it's too late. Paul's thinking there's a great many things you ought to walk away from. I've described them in the epistle. The last thing in the world you ought to do is walk away from the gospel. Walk away from your carnality. Walk away from your, your, your lawsuits. Walk away from your sexual immorality. Walk away from your twisted version of communion. Walk away from the pursuit of these ridiculous tongues. If you're going to walk toward a gift, walk toward prophecy because it builds the church up. There's a thousand things you can walk away from. The gospel's never one of them. That's what he's saying. He 
It's the only message they ever heard. It's the message, it's not the only message they ever heard because I'm sure there was outside interference, but it's the message that they initially heard. It's the message that they initially believed. Paul's saying, come back to it. Make sure, let's make sure if he's not saying come back to it, he's saying, let's make sure we never leave it. He's absolutely making clear here in the text that if the Corinthians embrace something other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are not embracing Paul's gospel. They're not embracing Apollos' gospel. They're not embracing Cephas' gospel. They're not embracing the apostles' gospel. They're not embracing Scripture's gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. They're not embracing, as we're focusing on now, the church's gospel. Any gospel that doesn't have resurrection or missing any of the other components, that's some other gospel. And what did Paul say about other gospels in Galatians 1.8? They are accursed, anathema. Remember the problem with the Galatians, that they were trying to justify themselves by some other gospel that included works for justification? When Paul says you're justified by faith alone, it's a false gospel. The Roman Catholic gospel is a false gospel. Paul's saying if you have a resurrection-less gospel, it's a false gospel. It's anathema. Same thing to the Galatians. It's that simple. Winding down. In verses 1 to 11, Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel according to Scripture, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the next section, he will defend both the resurrection of Christ as well as the resurrection of believers. And I think that's what they were primarily messing with is maybe they, obviously, they didn't go as far as to reject Christ rising. They had questions about it but they were rejecting their own future resurrection at his return, which is tantamount to rejecting the resurrection of Christ. And Paul will lay out an incredible argument for that. In wrapping up, I'll just end with a few questions and exhortations like I did last Sunday. The gospel has been preached here at RHC and at other locations. We've been at several locations. It's been preached from every pulpit at RHC, no matter what part of town it's in, and it, interestingly, it's always been in this part of town. We've never been on the other side of town. Let's go plant a church over by Costco. We make my after church shopping much easier. <laughs> Try a tip for everybody. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've been doing, we have always preached the gospel for over 10 years now, and that's by God's grace. But the question I have for us is, what are we doing with this gospel? What are we doing with it? Have we received it? Are we standing in it or on it? Is it transforming us? Are we being made incrementally, day by day, more like Christ because of the transforming power of this gospel as we cooperate with the Spirit? Are we spreading this gospel? Are we sharing it with others? That's the mission of the church. The message is the gospel. The mission is to take that message out. What are we doing with it? Now, if someone in this congregation has not yet received the gospel as truth, maybe this 
person or persons. They are refusing to stand in it for salvation for whatever reason. I just want to ask this. What is holding you back? Surely it can't be because you think you are unsavable. Like you're just too sinful to be loved and forgiven by God. Did you not hear the testimony of Paul in verses 9 to 10? Huh? The gospel can save a brutal, bloodthirsty persecutor like him. If it can save a bloody, terrible persecutor like him, surely it can save a sinner like you. Comparatively speaking, you're small potatoes compared to Paul. Huh? Right? Well, I look back on my life before I knew Jesus, and I had done a lot of really dumb, stupid things, very sinful, and not to say that I was more sinful for, uh, than Paul or him to me, but I, I, didn't, I didn't kill any Christians. I probably killed them in my mind, which Jesus says is basically the same thing. But I mean, if, if the worst Nero-like persecutor on earth at that time can be saved and transformed, then I think that can happen for us too. It's not that our sin is small potatoes. The slightest sin is cosmic treason against a holy God. So we don't want to diminish the seriousness of our sin in comparison to the seriousness of Paul's sin. All sin brings death, Romans 6.23. Paul needed a Savior. We need a Savior. But the point is, is that I think there's people sometimes that hear the gospel and they say to themselves, he would never save somebody like me because of what I've been involved in and what I've done. Paul, I'm sure those... 500 brothers were just a really good team. That's 500 degenerates that were saved. What do you think God has to work with here? You think he's got some princes to work with? He's got nothing but broken and marred and destroyed lives to deal with. There are no people without sin. All like sheep have gone astray. He doesn't have any good people to work with. He only has dead people to work with. So there's no possible way that you could think that you're so bad off that you're unsavable. Someone in my mind that maybe might be worse than Paul, I mean, obviously he's a persecutor and he hurt some brothers and sisters. That's horrific, but King David comes to mind, a man who, as a believer, took a, another man's wife and it got her pregnant to cover it up. He had her husband killed on the battle lines. I can't think of anything more despicable and disgusting as that. And yet he's called a man after God's own heart. Not because of that wickedness, but because of his ability, once called out, to repent and fall on his face in tears, in contrition. I mean, if God can save a person like David, God can save a person like Paul, God can save a person like Peter who was a meatball with marinara, denied Christ three times, sank to the bottom of the lake when he was trying to walk out to Jesus. The man had no faith. The guy was a mess. Of, of the 12, who did Jesus call Satan and say, get behind me? Peter. That's pretty bad. 
No, if he can save those worthless sinners, he can save you, worthless sinner. He didn't see you as worthless. So don't try to blame it on, well, I'm just too sinful. I'm just too sinful to be saved. Say it's not because you think you're too sinful to be saved. Maybe it's because you just flat out love your sin. If you're just going to be honest, you know, I just like who I am, like sin, feels good, it's exciting. Why would you love the very thing that has killed you spiritually and is now killing you physically? That's ridiculous thinking. That's suicidal. You are going to die physically one day because of sin. You are dead now before God because of sin. You're spiritually dead before him. Why would you love this thing that's, that's killing you, that keeps you separated from God? and that will put you in a grave to be raised unto judgment. That, that is the most insane thinking. Like as if you're walking out on the ledge at Ralston Tower threatening to jump. That's what you're doing. Because you love your sin, the thing that's killing you? Why would you love what's killing you? Loving what kills you is twisted. And maybe it's because it's not so much as that I don't think that I'm irredeemable or that I love my sin. Maybe you just think, well, I just love my freedom. And I think that if I repent and trust in Christ, that, that's like, you know, being enshackled or I become a religious person or something like that. Let me tell you something right now. This is a trick of the devil. No one who sins is free. You think you're free, but you're not. The person who sins is a slave to sin, John 8, 34. They are a son or daughter of disobedience under the power of Satan, Ephesians 2, 2. Sin might make you feel good. The freedom to just engage in whatever kind of carnality you want, it might make you feel good for a moment, but its pleasures are always fleeting, and the end result is always destructive every time. Sin does not bring freedom. Sin is not a product of freedom. Sin is bondage. It produces shame. It produces despair. It does not produce happiness. It does not produce joy. Sin is absolutely terrible. It is why there is darkness and depravity and death in the world. You don't think you're savable because you're so terrible? Huh. Consider Paul. Consider his testimony. You love your sin. Why would you love the thing that's killing you? You love your freedom. You're not free. You're not free. Spurgeon once said, sin is our sovereign until sovereign grace dethrones it. That's the truth. Take it from my testimony. Sin is absolutely terrible, but Christ is a tremendous Savior. He saves to the uttermost, all, all caps, all in caps, who come to the Father through him, Hebrews 7.25. Even the dregs 
of society he saves. Think of where he, Paul recites who the Corinthians once were and they were homosexuals and they were thieves and they were drunkards as some of you were, were. They were saved right out of that. You see what Christ does is when he saves, he replaces the love of sin with love for him. And he provides true freedom. He said it himself, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 8.36 of John. And he obviously gives peace, and it's a peace that transcends understanding. He also gives the fullness of joy, not a little bit of joy. It's the fullness at all times, even during the worst situations and scenarios where we're hurting or dealing with loss. Philippians 4.7, John 15.11. If you will repent of your unbelief, or if we will repent of our unbelief and put our faith in Christ, believing that he died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day for our salvation, he will save us, and our new life in him will begin. And yet, if we continue to reject the gospel, the power of sin, Satan, and death remain over us, the bondage of sin will increase, and when we die, we will face divine judgment. And the most tragic and saddest thing of all will take place. Once we receive that judgment, we will be cast into hell for all eternity to pay for the very sins that Jesus has offered to you to pay for and to cover. You see, Noah's way of escape from a global flood was an ark. Our way of escape from divine judgment is the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our ark. That is our ark. Believe the gospel and be saved. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.